You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me again is Mr. Chris Dashew. I'm here and I'm ready to talk some Czech New Wave films. September 2018 continues with a look at Antonin Moskalik's Dita Saxova. Released in 1968, the film was adapted by Arnos Lustig and based on his novel. Reports vary, but Jan Nemec might have had a little bit of a hand in the script, or he might have dropped out before writing a word of the original draft, which was turned in way back in 1963. The film is the story of our titular Dita Saxova, a survivor of Nazi death camps who carries with her survivor's guilt. She moves from one relationship to another without seeming to have a care in the world, though this ultimately doesn't seem to be the case. So we're going to be talking about all aspects of the film. So spoilers ahoy. No duh. Chris, I'm very curious. What did you think of Dita Saxova? So first thing I want to mention, Mike, this is the first time I have been on the projection booth where it's just you and I. So it's only taken a couple of years, but we're, we, we're here. We've arrived. I don't trust myself when I'm alone with you, Chris. I don't trust myself with loving you, so that either. Uh, what did I think of Dita Saxova? So earlier this year, you programmed a month for us over at the podcast that I do for Japanese New Wave films. And those films reminded me a lot of this. And I'm assuming you feel the same way. But this film, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, it's very, it's very hard to watch the, the version that I watched, the same version that you watched. It's not exactly the best quality. I don't know if that's the best quality that's out there. The quality of the film and the quality of the, the version that I'm watching notwithstanding, it's a very, not depressing, but it's a very dour film. The themes of the film are really heavy. They might not seem like it, but once the once you kind of get into the meat of the film, about uh, what feels to be about half an hour in, the film really starts to kind of it starts to wear on you. And the Dita Saxova character is kind of a cipher because, like you mentioned in the intro, you know she doesn't seem to care, but then by the end of the film, it's like, oh, that's not the case. And it's just it's a rough watch. It's a good movie. It's just a really rough film to watch. I am curious, Mike, what did you think? Well, I feel kind of bad because most of the time when I'm talking about Czech New Wave, I tend to focus more on the either the comic or the comically subversive versions of those films. So last year we talked about an older Tlipsky film, and he is pretty much straight out comedy, but there's a lot of subversive elements to his stuff. You know, even The Cremator is a dark comedy. Closely watched trains, there's a lot of humor in that. There's not very much, if any, humor in Dita Saxova, so I feel really bad. Like last week we watched uh, The Fifth Horseman is Fear, which is a pretty d- dark film, kind of depressing, but there's also, again, like this element of subversion. There's this whole idea of we are in Czechoslovakia, we're in the 60s, we're under communist rule. You know, late 60s, things are kind of thawing out before the Prague Spring, and we can tell these stories, and we generally substitute the communists with Nazis, and so we're really telling stories about Nazis on the surface, but it's more about the communists, you know, in reality. This film is very much just about 
you know, th- like I'm sure there's more to it than just about Nazis and stuff. And then there's nary a Nazi to be seen. This is almost all the effects of what happens to these survivors. This is a story of these girls who have survived the Holocaust and that they are not necessarily quite right. And to your point, Dita Saxova is very much a cipher and she is, she's so gorgeous that it kind of puts you off and she has all these men falling all over her, but she doesn't really know what she wants or we can't really tell exactly what she wants. There's just the whole movie. I'm sitting there trying to figure out who is this person? Why should I care about this person? What does she want? What's going on in her head? And she'll give us some glimpses sometimes. And we even get flashbacks to her as a little girl before this horrific event occurred, but we never get, that horrific event, which I think is smart, but at the same time makes for kind of a challenging film. Yeah, no, this is about as challenging a film as I think I've seen in a while since Japanese New Wave Month. I mean, we watched some films that month that really kind of challenge what I would consider to be my preconceived notions of of film and kind of what can be entertainment and, and what is film and this film kind of slots directly into that. I mean, it's not talking about the same themes. The Japanese New Wave films, the ones that we watched, were a lot about like repressed sexuality and subversive sexuality, subversive in quotations. And this film, it, it kind of touches on some of that, but but not really. The subversiveness of this film is, like you said, it's practically non-existent. This film is pretty much about survivor's guilt and losing everything that made you who you were to a traumatic event. And that's what makes the character of Dita Sexova so kind of bizarre in a way. She's all there, but she's really not. And if you're watching this film expecting to kind of gauge a better idea of to what her character is, you're not going to get it by the end of the film. Yeah, she's there almost as other characters to bounce off of. Like, we get a whole string of men and each man seems to represent different things in the film and different things to her. There's the kind of the Bolshevik character who is, you know, very concerned about wages and these kind of things. He's like for the common man. And then you get this, um, guy Lagas, who's played by Yuri Menzel, the director of uh, Closely Watched Trains, and he wants to take her away to San Salvador, and he's got an uncle down there, and he wants to you know, give her this new life. And then you've got this guy, David, who's pretty much like this gigolo, and he's got this fancy car, and she's he's ultimately the person that she gives her virginity to. And then afterwards, there's no real connection. And you kind of get those guys coming in and out of her life. And then you get this very extended scene at a party where all three of those guys are there, plus some other men that play important roles in her life as far as this doctor that's there uh, examining her earlier in the film and some other uh, older guys. And then you also have the man who runs the house where she and these three other, well, it's it's more than three. There's at least four that we see, these four other girls, but I know that there are other girls that are at this place. And it's this orphanage for girls who have lost their parents in the war and they seem to age around like 16 through 18 or so and she really looks out for one girl and when that girl 
I'm glad I gave a spoiler warning, but when that girl dies, and I think it's suicide towards the end of the film, that's really what breaks her. Like she's lost two of the other people that really mean a lot to her, two of the other women. They've either gotten married or moved away or both. And then when she loses the girl, it's just too much for her. And then she ends up committing suicide. Dita ends up committing suicide. At least that's how I interpret it at the end of the film. Well, I don't know how else there is to interpret it, right? I mean, I, you and I were kind of going back and forth before we recorded. And I asked you, I was like, did she just end up killing herself at the end? Because it's not really made clear. She goes, you know, no more. And then the last shot is really striking. The last shot is striking. You've kind of got this pan over the mountains and then it comes down and you kind of see the snow and it looks to be a body kind of sitting in the snow. You take this journey with this character, and by the end of the film, you just really feel like you got punched in the stomach. Because it's it's like, well, everything bad seems to be happening to her. She has really nothing to live for in her own mind, so she just kills herself, possibly. And it's like, Jesus. Like there, the, the, the film is pitch black. There is very little positivity to the film. And I think that that's kind of important, because the subject matter that they're talking about is... Nazis and concentration camps and, you know, the displacement of people in concentration camps and how it affected them. And I think that that's it. This is an important film in, in regards to kind of the way people who were interred in concentration camps had to deal with it getting out. And I'm sure that there are there are people, women, men that experienced exactly what she's experiencing from a kind of psychological standpoint and a kind of why did I survive when everyone else died? I mean, we've seen our fair share. Both of us have probably seen our fair share of Holocaust movies, but it almost always ends with our people inside of a camp. We barely, if ever, see... I mean, I can think of a few films that show the liberation of camps, but that's from the point of view of a soldier. It's not the people inside of the camps, and we don't get that... Six months after, six years later, we don't tend to get that. We'll get maybe 20 years later and we'll see, you know, someone with a number on their arm, those kind of things. But we don't get what we're getting here. And apparently, even though this was released in 1968, it's supposed to be more of a period piece. And it's tough for me to pick up on that, that this is supposed to be set more in the 50s. I just assume when I watch it that it's set in the year that it's coming out, but it's supposed to be the fifties, apparently the dress and the, you know, the, the way that people act and maybe even the music or whatever, it sets it in that era. But as a dumb foreigner, I'm just like, okay, yeah, it's 1968, but then that doesn't make sense as far as the timeline goes. So I'm guessing this is just a few years after world war two. So yeah, late 40s, maybe early 50s at the most. Well, and that's what I assumed as well. I mean, it's like you said, we're Americans. So we I mean, we don't have a whole lot of frame of reference for, you know, traditional Czech wear of the 50s and 60s. But, you know, outside of some of the kind of more idiosyncrasies of Czech life, I would say that the, the message and the story that the film tells is pretty universal. Because obviously, I mean, it's a it's about her being an orphan coming out of a concentration camp. But, you know, you could look at it as any sort of traumatic event. 
I mean, if you experience a traumatic event, I would assume that you feel a, a level of emptiness. You know, uh, we look at any sort of things that have happened in the last hundred, you know, last hundred years in the United States or anywhere else. There have been all kinds of traumatic events. There are traumatic events happening every week in this country, unfortunately. So, I mean, I can't begin to imagine what that is like for some people, but this film, I think, does a good job of trying to give an idea as to what people who have gone through something traumatic deal with after the fact. Yeah, and she tries to make things right. I mean, one of the early scenes that we get is this guy who shows up and says, I kept this money for, I think it's either for her uncle or for her father, and ends up giving her this gold foil. So it's kind of like they managed to to keep this through the war, and it was illegal for him to keep it safe and hidden he ends up giving her this stuff and then she buys a bracelet with the majority of it it seems and that bracelet just becomes this totem through so much of the film people are always commenting on her bracelet asking her about it looking at it and it just becomes such a prominent feature in the frame so many times um and then it's got her what does she call it her axiom or her motto on the back which is you know life isn't always what you want but it's what you get and i think that also carries throughout the entire film as far as what she's just trying to deal with and we get those flashbacks to her and her folks um and i think that's one of the last the last flashback that we get of that is her and her folks sitting down to dinner which seems to be the last time that she probably had normalcy in her entire life. And then after that, it just all went to hell. No, yeah, that's. I, I think that that's a really kind of interesting way to close out the film because that's the last thing we see of any characters is that flashback with her family. And it, I, the way I kind of interpret it is like her, like like you said, remembering the last good time before she kills herself. Because, you know, your life flashes before your eyes. That's kind of what you always hear. Um, the, something I, I do want to point out, and this is, I don't know if you, you notice this, the poster for the film, one of the posters for the film, it's either, I believe it's a poster or maybe it's the, the, the box art for the DVD. It has a candle with a moth going towards it. And that for, it's not, there's like, there's two, there's two posters. There's one where it's just Ditas X Oven. It has like a face, um, on it. And then there's another one that has like a moth going to a candle flame. And I found that a little interesting as well, because she seems to be putting herself in the film in a lot of these situations that are a little incendiary and can burn her, you know, if she is the moth to the flame, because, you know, she has these three men, two of them end up fighting with each other in a bar. And then she goes out with an, another character who, thinks that she's just like a whore and he's just, it's like an older man who's just trying to have sex with her in, in one of the more uncomfortable scenes in the film. And she's like constantly drawn to these situations that are not the kind of situation someone like this should be putting themselves in. Yet she continues to do it over and over again, looking at the poster, reading probably way too much into it. It's just, it's interesting because that's kind of, again, one of the themes of the film is, is, She's being very self-destructive on top of everything else. The end of this film is fascinating to me. You talked about, you know, the the memory, you talked about her saying no more. And there's a great part of this where 
I'm guessing that it's her birthday because she goes over to this clock and is looking at this clock. And then she goes over to a candle to bring back the candle that you were just talking about, looking at this candle, like time is wicking away for her. And she just says, I'm 19. And then there's nothing, like no dialogue for the longest time until she says no more and then goes out and kills herself. Around that time, she's kind of flirting or there's a, almost a liaison with this guy. And it's on this, it's like a big white rug. And it's interesting because that really recalls the snow that we'll get just in a few scenes later when we have her dead in the snow. So there's a lot of stuff happening in this. I'm just not sure if it's 100% successful the way that they bring it together. I'm kind of in the same camp with you. I, I don't think that the way that they ended the film really worked in a way. It, it, it left something to be desired because everything else in the film is so well done and so kind of on point and on the mark. And it doesn't feel like it's leaving. I mean, it leaves a little bit up to interpretation, but I'm not sitting thinking like, well, what did that mean? But when the ending comes, it just, it, it's not that it comes out of nowhere. It's just, it doesn't feel like it's a fitting ending for this journey we've been going on with this character. It almost makes the character of Dita Saxova feel like a, a throwaway character. She didn't matter. And it's, and that, and that again, it's a, it's disappointing because we took this, this ride with her for, for, you know, an hour and 50 minutes. And then she just dies off screen. And the last shot, again, super striking, but just, it just left something to be desired for me as, as well. You said that the, copy that you were looking at wasn't that good that copy is so much better than the other one that i had which you could barely read the subtitles it was like it wasn't a janus films release but you know how some of the old vhs tapes where the subtitles just feel like they're hanging on for dear life and it's white over white a lot of times so these subtitles and everything were night and day better compared to the other version so I was super pleased with the the version that you and I watched, but having not seen that really super shitty version that I could have foisted upon you, you know, it might not have looked as good for you. So I I, uh, I feel bad about that. I'm sorry about that. Well, and I've been known to watch cam versions of films that are in the theaters on my PC. So I, I it wasn't a it wasn't a oh woe is me I can't see it issue. It was more just of a I feel like if the film had been in like high quality HD, it would have been really striking because there are a lot of really striking shots in this film, especially the end. Some of the stuff in the in the club is really interesting. The credits, the intro credits of the film are so interesting where it's just her as a child staring out. And it's not like a freeze frame. It's like her as a child just staring out at the audience. And you've got the credit roll going over it. And I just, I thought that that was, I don't know why, but I just found it captivating. Yeah, that was nice. And it almost felt like an accusation. Uh, when I was on the piano teacher with you, uh, the piano teacher had a really interesting opening credit sequence where it was kind of cutting back and forth. And this film, again, it just felt very, it felt very, I don't know, like you don't see American films doing anything interesting in the credit sequence. And... Again, not a condemnation of American cinema because, I mean, American cinema is fantastic. There's a lot of really interesting stuff being done, but a lot of foreign films really kind of shirk conventions when it comes to opening credit sequences. And I find, I just find that so interesting. 
that it's just it seems to be something that a lot of foreign filmmakers really kind of focus on and, and make sure that they're they're doing something interesting throughout the film, even with something as kind of banal as the opening credit sequence. Well, the cinematographer of this was uh, Yaroslav Kusera, who has lent some of my favorite films of the Czech New Wave. I mean, uh, Daisies was the film. I think that might have been the film that he did before this. And he also did Pearls of the Deep, Diamonds of the Night, which was another Arnos Lustig uh, adaptation. He worked a lot with uh, Chitlova with both Daisies and then also Fruit of Paradise. And then he also worked with one of my favorite directors, which was uh, Older Slipsky. And he went on to shoot... Joaquin put in the machine and the straw hat and uh, just a ton of stuff. And even the editor worked a bunch with Lipsky as well. He did uh, uh, Dinner for Adele and a few other things. So, yeah, they had some very talented people behind it. And it's interesting, though, that the director, like he had done two features for theatrical release before this one, but this was still relatively early in his career. He only started directing in 62. And from what I read, as far as behind the scenes, this movie was kind of kicking around since 63. Like I said, Jan Nemec was supposed to have worked on this. And apparently there was some disagreement about the fees that were going on between he and Lustig and then it gets a co-written by the director and Lustig for the screenplay. So I'm curious how that happened. And even the, the making of article that I read on 25 FPS, they didn't even mention Yuri Menzel as being in the movie. And they talked about all the casting difficulties. And I was like, uh, why aren't you even mentioning him? Because, you know, Menzel... Not only was he a fantastic director, but he was a great actor as well. So him as – what was his, his name again? He wasn't David. He was the – Laugus. Uh, Herbert Laugus. Yeah. So him as Laugus, you know, he was great. He was such a great sad sack and just like, oh, come with me. My uncle's got this place. It'll be great. Yeah, he's definitely the uh, the demure male of the film. More so than David, who's kind of this, you know, big dick swinging, fancy car driving – fighting for Dita Saxova's heart in the bar. And it's just, it's interesting that she's really attracted to kind of a, a wide kind of swath of characters in this film. And again, I think it just goes back to kind of the self-destructive nature of the character where she's just, she just can't seem to figure out how to put herself on a, on a path that, that makes sense. Yeah. I read some of Lustig's book, but I was not able to get through it all. It's very easy to read. The translation that I read was super easy to read. Though, it was interesting they said that he wrote the book and it came out and then he went back and added a bunch more afterwards. So the version that I have is like 370 pages. So I'm curious what the earlier version of that would have been and if that would have moved a little quicker because I'm like quite a few chapters in and really not too much has happened. It's pretty much just setting up stuff. And so much of it is from the point of view of the guy who runs the orphanage and him, you know, he, he is very much like you and me saying like, he doesn't understand Dita Saxova. She seems to be so many different things to so many different people. And he really can't get a bead on her. 
But at the same time, he understands that she and all the rest of these girls have gone through so much trauma, things that he could never even imagine, that he cuts them a ton of slack. Well, and and that's, again, that's the thing about this this film and this character that should be praised a lot is Christina Mikolajewska's performance is so... God, it's it's you don't you don't see performances like this very often where someone really embodies the character and fully understands what the director and the screenwriters are going for because she really could have overdone it and really kind of played it a little because it, you you know it could have been more ingenue and that's what I was expecting when I read the synopsis for the film but it's not that at all she seems to put up a front of being in control obviously she's really not but she puts up the front that she's in control of herself and her surroundings as everything kind of spirals out of control. Mila Juska does such a great job of really honing in on the character and the character's motivation or seemingly lack of motivation. And again, it's just, I fully buy into it that she just kind of embodies this character and that the characters like the, the person who runs the orphanage just doesn't understand her at all. And I guess that's why it's such a surprise slash shock at the end when she kills herself is because one, you don't necessarily know what's going on in her head and that she takes that extreme measure is kind of a shock. But at the same time, you want her to succeed. You want her to be okay. And that she, I don't know if we can say that she admits defeat. She lets the world beat her down. Her two girlfriends are gone, and the third one killed herself, the one that she really cared for. Because the doctor asks her right at the beginning, who do you love the most? And she says this girl's name, and it's just like, wow, okay. So she really cares for this person, and then when she's dead, that's it. And I think that the girl, again, kind of gleaning more from the book, I think the girl had been severely raped when she was in the camps, and they just kind of allude to that and don't really ever, you know, say it outright. And I definitely don't think that they say it outright in the movie. So these girls are all carrying some really deep scars. Again, that's why I just kind of really am drawn to this film is because all the characters are so broken and they're so interesting in their own. I don't think that they mentioned anything about her being raped. And that I think that again, really makes the film a little bit more interesting is that you kind of can draw your own conclusion as to as to what's driving these characters and what's kind of making them do the things that they do. And a lot of people are not going to like that. They really aren't. They're going to have a problem with a film like this where the characters really are just a lot of internalization of emotions and, and feelings. And the film ends really on this note of character kills herself, the end, okay, and that, I think a lot of people have a problem with that. I personally enjoyed it because, again, this is very much a character piece. It's very character driven. It's just it's a great film for watching someone put on a performance that it's so nuanced in a way that you just you know. I'm, I mean, again, maybe I'm just overselling this film, but I really like the main actress Mikola Juska's performance, and I think it's really well done. After watching it the first time, I had no idea what to think about this movie. I was just kind of shocked by the end and left a little cold. And then I went back and I watched it again a second time a couple days later, and I got a lot more out of it, even to the point of like kind of figuring some things out as far as like 
her friend, the one with the dark hair, who's a little bit on the heavier side, that she sings this song when they're all together. And there's this really striking sequence where the camera's kind of wandering around this table while the four women or four girls are in this room. Really nice camera work going on in there. And and the one girl sings this song, and that's the same song that they basically play her out with when she's getting on the train and she leaves, is that song comes up and I want to say that there's a band playing it. And then there's another song that Dita Saxova is kind of associated with. And then that comes back later on, I want to say in the end credits. So it's, there are nice kind of bookends to these characters. And again, it wasn't necessarily something I picked up the first time, but the second time I watched this, I was just like, okay, I'm on board with this movie. But the first time I was really not there and i was just like this girl is too cold i don't know what's going on in her head she's too much of a cipher and then i was able to kind of get past myself the second time i watched it what did you think of martin ruzik as the doctor because i also found the doctor character to be so interesting and kind of one of the more kind of level-headed characters in the film that seems to be like a constant in her life he's in like he's in a lot of the really like important scenes in the film. And he seems to be like a, a kind of pseudo father figure for her, kind of like the, the orphanage director. And he's like, you need to kind of get on the right path. You have everything at your disposal. Come on. Every male character, like older male character in this film is like a, like a father figure to Dita Saxova, except for Gottlob, who is just a, you know, he's just trying to just have sex with her. Which I guess you could make a you could make a statement about that in regards to paternal incest, but I mean I don't I, that's not what this film is going for because there's no mention of Saxova's character having been raped. But again, I mean that may have been in the book for all I know. Like I said, she doesn't really talk about the camps very much at all. There's just that one thing that she talks about to her ward, which is how she fell to her knees and was begging for her mom's life and pretty much was told no and i can't remember i think the guard ends up striking her so it's just like okay that's it and that's really all we get as far as her memories and that's not something we see that's just a spoken memory which again i think might make it even more powerful that we don't have to have that shown to us that we just get it told to us but yeah i agree the doctor character the doctor and the the guy who runs the orphanage those two characters are, are nice constants and i was really glad that the doctor was there at that long night cl- not nightclub but the party sequence let's say as opposed to the nightclub sequence where we have that girl belly dancing for the longest time <laughs> that's, that's a like, really weird club to be in yeah yeah he again, again like he's probably outside of dita sexova he's probably my favorite character in the film because again he's just you you feel for his character that he's doing everything he can and that he genuinely cares about these these characters and these uh, the the women and he could take advantage of them but he's not because he like genuinely cares about them and their well-being and then you know the way the film ends it, you can only imagine what happens after all these characters are so just they're dealing with trauma and then one of the characters goes and does this and then they're having to like now they're really dealing with like firsthand trauma as opposed to trying to kind of help those who had firsthand trauma. I've seen him show up before. I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of nice about uh, a lot of these Czech films is that 
you only have a limited amount of people who are working on them. So you get to see these faces kind of come and go through a lot of roles. Like he was actually in Happy End, which we talked about last year. He did a voice apparently in Marketa Lazarova, which we're going to be talking about in a couple weeks. We talked last week on um, And the Fifth Horseman is Fear about the character who ends up popping up in this, Ilya Prakar, who's the bartender. And so he's, I don't even, he just has like a handful of lines, but he's one of those great faces. Like usually he plays a Nazi officer or some sort of real bastard, but he shows up in this and he was just this nice friendly bartender and kind of trying to settle these guys down. Cause there's that whole conversation of the two older guys that are at the bar. And I keep thinking that there's more to that conversation. Like if I was better versed in what was going on in the world at that time, like I might've understood a little bit more of what these two guys were talking about, but it kind of went over my head, unfortunately. So I'm curious because I haven't seen any other Czech new wave films and you you touched on it at the beginning a little bit. This one for you, where where does it kind of fall in the spectrum? Because I'm assuming, similarly to Japanese New Wave, there are some New Wave films that are just okay. I don't think that I've seen nearly enough to put anything into any sort of list. Like like I said before, I tend to enjoy the ones that I've seen that are more groundbreaking you know when you and i talked about japanese new wave one of the things that kept coming up in all of those films was the way that the filmmakers were playing with form you know you get something like funeral parade of roses which really played with the form and it was just kind of balls out not nuts you know well and this film is really straightforward exactly aside from the flashbacks there is nothing experimental done in this film which is i was surprised by because that's kind of what I was expecting when you think of new wave in any reference to anything. I mean, you think of the British new wave music or any new wave, anything you think of an experimental take or a more kind of progressive take on a genre of whatever it's in reference to coming forward. We're going to have to just call this, you know, just, just check timber and not necessarily say that we're focusing on check new wave. Cause there's even stuff in the eighties, the nineties, the later seventies, like well after, the quote unquote new wave movement is over for all intents and purposes. So it's just got to be more just check stuff. But I mean, 68 was kind of where things changed as far as, you know, the politics of the country really changed again uh, for the worse. A lot of filmmakers were actually forbidden from making films after 68. A lot of people moved into television work. Some people emigrated so it was the end of this era, but yeah, this is this isn't what I'm used to when it comes to Czech New Wave. I am more used to playing with the form, or playing with the politics, or just the subversive nature of stuff. And I'm also I'm used to a lot more humor, and I think humor humor kept people off balance, so it was easier to get things through to the public with humor. So even like the dark humor, dark humor of like transport from paradise or these kind of things where it's, you know, about a a ghetto and it's about Nazis and it's about this, it's about that, but you, you kind of throw in a laugh in order to make it 
almost make it sting a little bit more when it comes to your other points. Whereas this film, I think you used the word dour when you were first describing it. And that's what this feels like. It's a very, it's a very staid kind of dour. It's a beautiful film. It's a well-made film. Doesn't have those things that I earmark as far as being a new wave, but that's not to say that this is a bad film by any, any means. Yeah, no, it's 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 a very serious film and it's very it's so serious that it it kind of took the wind out of me a little bit that it was so serious and so depressing because it is depressing and that's partially due to or primarily due to the source material. And that that for me is kind of what I wasn't expecting when I went into this film. I wasn't expecting a really serious dramatic piece and that's what it is. I mean, like you mentioned, some of those Japanese New Wave films, I mean, think about Death by Hanging or Funeral Parade for Roses. There's some humor. I mean, it's it's very dark humor. But at the same time, it, it helps to lighten, like you said, lighten the mood. And oof, this film could have used it. I guess maybe not. I mean, I think this film is is really good. Like one of the better films I've seen in a really long time. So I don't think it needs it, but... For a mainstream audience who's not watching this film anyways, because let's be honest, this film is about as far outside the mainstream realm of something anyone's going to watch, unfortunately, that I guess it doesn't really need it. But it's it's so, you know, no pun intended, it's so black and white with kind of the the, the tone that it just it kind of just pulls all the wind out of you. Yeah, and I think that's why I didn't necessarily like it the first time I saw it, was I felt flattened by this movie. Oh, it, it, it completely made me feel the exact same way. Like like I, like I we said, I messaged you, or we were talking back and forth uh, earlier today, and I was just like, oh, this is how this movie ended? Like, it's really? <laughs> Boy, man, really just goes for it right at the end. It, it, it takes the knife, sticks it in, and then twists it, just like a full 180 degrees. And that's what it felt like at the end. Because I don't think there's any question as to whether or not the character kills herself. And it does feel, and I mean, we don't want to have kind of a existential discussion about suicide, but it does feel like the character kind of just gives into the worst side of what her character has dealt with as opposed to persevering. She kind of lets the self-destruction really take hold of her. And, I mean, it makes sense in the kind of the progression of the film and the progression of the character, but it doesn't make it any less impactful. And, you know, they always say, like, the best ending of a film is the one that kind of seems inevitable. And the ending of the film does seem inevitable. And it, it makes sense that that's how the film ends, but it doesn't make it any less impactful that it was so inevitable. Yeah, they always talk about the numbers when it comes to the Holocaust. And I'm curious as far as what were those suicide numbers afterwards? Like after the war officially ended, after the camps were liberated, what kind of suicide rate were there in these countries where you had the survivors? I mean, it must've been so devastating for people. That's, that's the thing about the Holocaust that always, like you said, no one ever talks about is just the, the, the effects after afterwards. And, you know, and again, I mean, you know, the Holocaust the Holocaust against the Ukrainians in Russia. I mean, all these things in Eastern Europe were so horrible for these people that you just, you can't help but wonder 
how true this story was for so many people. And that's, again, that's kind of the thing that really puts this film in perspective for me is that this film really has to have been true to life in some respects. Maybe not 100% true to life, but you can imagine real people actually kind of feeling empty and without purpose and kind of just sleepwalking through life and just looking for the next thing to fill an empty void in their their being and and you know it's it's realistic especially i mean it's like dealing with depression that's the way it's the way a lot of people with depression are i mean ha- as someone who's coped with it myself i mean that's the way you feel is you feel like you're just kind of going through life without purpose and that's what the character of dita saxova shows in the film she's kind of going through life without a purpose sleepwalking from one situation to the next looking to fill her life with something and ultimately she just can't yeah, the doctor says something to her when he's examining her. He's saying, like, have you heard about the girl who waited so long for the international train that she missed the local express? And it's just like, I don't think that Dita is waiting for either train. I think she's just waiting in general, just standing at the station, not necessarily knowing where she's going to go, what she's going to do. And she kind of tries out these different relationships with these different men, almost like maybe it'll be this, maybe it'll be that and hangs around. She's almost like a supporting player in her own life story. Well, and I mean, she has multiple opportunities to leave, to go, to make a better life for herself, especially with, uh, Jerry Menzel's character. They could have left. She could have left with him and she chose not to. Hell, she could have gone with Gottlob. I mean, that would have been a terrible option, but an option nonetheless. She takes none of the options. And it's just, it's it's so heartbreaking in the end that her character ends up just kind of giving into the, the crushing and crippling kind of survivor's guilt and depression that she feels on a daily basis. We're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. 
But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs, and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary, and Facial Mass Arts, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Welcome back to the show. That about wraps it up for Dita Sexova. Next week, we'll return with a discussion of Marketa Lazarova. Boy, these names, man. They're going to get me this month. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Chris Stashu. Chris, what is the latest with you, sir? Not a whole lot. We're in the middle of Samurai September over at the Culture Cast. If you are interested in listening to me and possibly you and some other folks talking about samurai films and no we're not talking you know jimbo and seven samurai we're talking a little bit more off the beaten path samurai films you can check that out over at culturecast.com and i also want to mention mike you mentioned that these names are really hard don't do polish new wave films if that's a thing because i think you'd have an even harder time in pronouncing the names I actually grew up with a bunch of Polish people uh, around here in Detroit, so I don't know if that would be easier or tougher, but yeah, I kind of don't want to try. Lots of vowels. Lots of vowels. Thrown together willy-nilly for us Westerners. Well, my uh, brother-in-law, his last name is Shinowskis, and the first time I ever met him, I was like, oh, is that S-H-I-N-O-U-K-I-S? And he's like, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, you just spell it the exact way that it sounds. <laughs> wow, you got it right in the first try. And I think, Chris, right around this time in September, we're going to be dropping the first episode of our new venture. You and I, along with a good buddy of mine, Mike Wallace, not 60 Minutes Mike Wallace, regardless of what you, Mr. White, think – are talking Twilight Zone 1985 once a month. And if you want to check that podcast out, head on over to twilightzone85.com. Our first episode is a doozy. Some really good performances and Bruce Willis in a dramatic role with hair nonetheless. Is it all his hair, do you think? I think so. I don't think he's wearing a wig. So yeah, definitely check that out. And as always, check out our other podcast that Chris and I do once a month, which is the Kolchak Tapes, which you can get at kolchaktapes.com. Thank you again, Chris, for coming on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com. You can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. <laughs>
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.